Our first scripture today comes from the Gospel of John, chapter 10, verses 1 through 10. Listen now for God's word to us. Very truly I tell you, anyone who does not enter the sheepfold by the gate, but climbs in by another way, is a thief and a bandit. The one who enters by the gate is the shepherd of the sheep. The gatekeeper opens the gate for him, and the sheep hear his voice. He calls his own sheep by name and leads them out. When he has brought out all his own, he goes ahead of them, and the sheep follow him because they know his voice. They will not follow a stranger, but they will run from him because they do not know the voice of strangers. Jesus used this figure of speech with them, but they did not understand what he was saying to them. So again, Jesus said to them, Very truly I tell you, I am the gate for the sheep. All who come before me are thieves and bandits. But the sheep did not listen to them. I am the gate. Whoever enters by me will be saved and will come in and go out and find pasture. The thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. Our second scripture comes from Acts chapter 2, verses 42 through 47. Listen again for God's word to us. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and fellowship, to the breaking of bread and the prayers. Awe came upon everyone, because many wonders and signs were being done by the apostles. All who believed were together and had all things in common. They would sell their possessions and goods and distribute the proceeds to all, as any had need. Day by day, they spent much time together in the temple. They broke bread at home and ate their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having the goodwill of all the people. And day by day, the Lord added to their number those who were being saved. This is the word of the Lord. It's kind of a funny thing that happens, I think, in this uh, scripture today from the, from the gospel. In verse 6, we learn that the crowd that was assembled, that was there listening to Jesus, they didn't quite get what he was saying. They, 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 were, they were a bit confused. And to be honest, I, I can't say that I completely blame them because he speaks almost kind of cryptically about sheepfolds and gates and shepherds and thieves. And then, you know, noticing their confusion, he tries to clear it up for them by saying that, that he is the gate. But before, he was the shepherd. And then at this point, everyone's scratching their heads thinking, okay, so, so you're the gate, but you're also the shepherd. But earlier you said you were the bread, and then you were the light and the truth and the way and the life. How, wait, which is it, Jesus, right? Like, wh- you can't be both the shepherd and the bread, and the gate, and all of these things together. How, how do we make sense of all this? And so as a result, many commentators have, have often accused Jesus of mixing his metaphors too much here, which is a big no-no for anyone who is supposed to be a skilled orator and a, a, a popular public teacher. And I'll admit, it, it can be a bit confusing at first if you try to chart it out and follow this, these metaphors that he offers in hopes of forming 
one single coherent image of, of what he's saying about himself. But I think instead, what we see him doing is, is what we see him doing elsewhere, particularly in John's Gospel, is kind of stacking these metaphors, one on top of the other on top of the other, so that through that, perhaps what he's communicating is that there's not one single metaphor or one single image to fully encapsulate who he is. But each one reveals just a little bit more about himself, about his true nature. Pointing us to the fact that our language is insufficient to describe the mysterious combination of God and humanity that is found in the person of Jesus Christ. So he reveals himself to us through his actions, through his deeds, through his miracles, but also with metaphor after metaphor after metaphor, each one disclosing a little bit more about who God is and how God is revealed through him. Now the effect of this, I think, is, is to broaden our perspective a little bit on who Jesus is, to show us that he's, he's even more than we first realized, than we first understood. There's actually um, a book that came out very recently, and I haven't read it, so don't get mad at me if it turns out that it's like full of heresy and all sorts of craziness. Um, but I love the title. The title is, Jesus is Better Than You Imagined. And I think that's a bit kind of what, what Jesus is communicating here. That you may see me as this great teacher, this, this prophet, this miracle worker, this, all of these things. And I am all of those things. But I'm so much more. I'm so much more than you've even imagined. I am far greater, far better than you have ever imagined. Now the other interesting thing about this text is that it's easy to forget that this chapter 10 is not like a new section. This is actually a continuation of a previous story. Because of the way our modern Bibles are divided up in chapters and verses, when we start a new chapter, our tendency is to assume that uh, we're beginning an entirely new section. There's a kind of a new piece of action that's going on here, an isolated section. So, now the problem with that is that we often think of this text as being just kind of abstract teaching by Jesus, somewhat in a vacuum, that he just was standing around one day with a crowd around him um, and started teaching, which is not quite the case. If we, if we pay attention to what comes immediately before this text, will realize that this is actually still a continuation of what he was saying and doing in chapter 9, which was the story of the healing of the man who was born blind. And that we actually read this story not long ago during Lent. The, the disciples and Jesus are walking along. They see this man who is a beggar, who is blind from birth, and they ask Jesus, why was this man born blind? Was it because of something his parents did? Or was it his own sin? And Jesus tells them, neither. It was neither his parents nor he who sinned that he was born blind. And then he heals the man. Now this healing stirs up some serious controversy, as you might remember. Mostly because on this particular day, it was the Sabbath. And it sets off this long interrogation scene with the Pharisees at the forefront of the action. The Pharisees are trying to figure out, who is this man? But where does he come from? Surely he can't come from God because he broke the Sabbath. And chapter 9, of course, ends with Jesus telling the Pharisees 
that they are the ones who have been blind the whole time, and that their sin remains. And then without any break in the action, or in his speaking, Jesus continues in what we call chapter 10, this, uh, the beginning of his teachings about the Good Shepherd. Now, it's important to keep this context in mind because we need to remember who Jesus is speaking to and why he's speaking these words in the first place. So in this case, it's the Pharisees, uh, the people of the town, the neighbors um, who, who brought the man to the Pharisees, and the blind man himself. His healing is the backdrop for Jesus' teaching here and helps inform what Jesus is saying and why he's saying it. So when Jesus says, I have come that they might have life, and life abundant, everyone who is there can look to the side and see this formerly blind beggar who has now been completely restored. They can see in him what abundant life looks like. A man who has not only had his eyesight restored, but now has hope for a future, has a new sense of dignity is now restored to fullness in his village, in his community, who will no longer be relegated to simply begging on the street. That is abundant life. And then when Jesus speaks of the voice of the strangers who try to lead the flock away, they can look to the other side and see the Pharisees, those who questioned the entire time, the religious leaders who refused to recognize that God could somehow be working through this man Jesus, the one who broke the Sabbath to restore this other man. The ones who tried to limit through whom, how, and when God is able to work. This man is not from God, they said, for he does not observe the Sabbath. And they accused him over and over and over again of being a sinner. So while Jesus is offering abundant life, they're doing everything they possibly can to keep the people from embracing that life. They are acting like the thief who comes only to steal, kill, and destroy. And Jesus is the one who offers abundant life. I think the other problem with understanding the, the teaching here as kind of abstract and general is, uh, is that we see it as rather than being necessarily connected to the healing um, we think that abundant life, the abundant life that Jesus is talking about, is often only understood to be the next life. Right? It's, it's talking about life after death only. All the talk about sheep entering through the gate and hearing the shepherd's voice becomes only a gate to heaven. And while it certainly is about that, there's no doubt, um, in the healing of the blind man, we see that abundant life is available is here, here and now, it is accessible to us. It is not simply a future promise, but it's also a present reality. And my concern, I think, is if the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus um, becomes reduced only to what happens in the next life, then Jesus becomes simply a means to an end, a gate to somewhere else. But what we see, especially in the healing of this man, is that Jesus' promises are good even now, even on this side of eternity, that he offers us life and life abundant here and now. But as we know, there, there are many thieves in this world, 
Many thieves that want only to steal, kill, and destroy. There are many strange voices calling us away from the voice of our good shepherd. Though I think very often we are our own worst enemies in this regard. We are our own thieves who refuse to allow ourselves to embrace the life that Christ offers. Just a few weeks ago, we celebrated Easter. And it was a, it's a day of rejoicing, of excitement, of celebration. Celebrating the good news that Christ rose from the dead and conquered death. But it's easy to forget that Easter isn't just one day. It's actually a whole season. Right now, liturgically in the church, we are in the season of Easter. A seven-week period leading up to Pentecost. So for seven weeks in the church year, we remind ourselves of the resurrection life that we have in Christ because of his resurrection. Now, of course, every Sunday is supposed to be a, a celebration of the resurrection, but these seven weeks in particular invite us into the imagination of what it means to live in the light of Christ's resurrection, to live that resurrection life that Christ offers. Because his resurrection changed everything. But it's so easy for us to resist its power, to, to, to push back, to push away, especially when we're surrounded by the strange voices and these thieves who would seek to steal, kill, and destroy. And we don't have to look very far to find them, to hear those voices. All we have to do is turn on one of the 24-hour news channels or go on to Facebook or any social media and we'll be reminded very, very quickly of all the thieves that we give our attention to instead of the voice of our Good Shepherd. It will quickly remind us that while we are indeed Easter people, we very much live in the world of Good Friday, the world that would seek to kill Jesus. But fortunately, we're not on our own. We're, we're not asked to do this by ourselves. We're not supposed to go it alone. So what we see today in our reading from Acts is how the earliest community of believers came together to live out their resurrection life as one because they knew they couldn't do it alone. What we see in this brief glimpse of their life together is their deep understanding and conviction that what they had did not belong to them that it was not theirs, that it came from God. It was a community marked by the practice of radical sharing, to the point that it's even a bit uncomfortable for us to think about what it might have been to live as a part of that community, selling their possessions, distributing it to each as they had need, worshiping together, breaking bread together, praising God together, completely devoted to that style of life. They knew that living the resurrection life, the life abundant, is much easier together than alone. Now, of course, we should say that we know that this type of life together was not necessarily the norm for the early church, and that much like today, there's, there's a wide variety of expression within the early church when it came to how they organized their worshiping communities. But there is, there's at least something about their life together that should speak to us on some level about what it means to be a Christian, about what it means to live that resurrection life. They didn't expect someone else to take care of the needs of the people with them. They weren't waiting for 
the government or some other organization to come along and take care of everyone. But neither did they expect those people, the, the destitute, to suffer alone. At least for a brief time, in this particular place, they took care of each other. They provided for each other. They loved each other. Because they understood that Jesus called them to abundant life. To resurrection life. And that they could not experience that, ab that abundant life while one of their brothers or sisters were suffering. It's this beautiful, idyllic vision of what it means to be the church. And it's something we ought to seriously consider and understand what this might mean for us. Resurrection means abundant life, both here and now, and in the world to come. And we experience that resurrection life when we are committed to our life together. I think one of the most powerful ways that I personally have experienced this resurrection life here in this place, in this church, is our weekly prayer times on Wednesdays. It's been this time of great renewal for me, and I know for others who have shared this experience together. Times of, of great joy and laughter as we celebrate the ways that God is moving in and among us. And we've also shared times of grief. We've carried difficult weights together, uh, shared those difficult moments, carrying each other's burdens the way that Christ called us to. Laughing together, crying together, praising God together, Christ indeed has been in our midst. And we have experienced, if even only for a moment, that resurrection life together. I think the most powerful part, though, has not been how prayers have been answered, and they have, and we give thanks to God for that, but the most powerful part, I think, is how, in each of us, how we are aware that God has been transforming us through that time, that God is changing us in that time, that how God is working on each of us individually by drawing us closer together strengthening our bonds of fellowship and love. Now, as a church, we may never be able to, to get to that beautiful picture of what the church looked like in Acts 2. Um, and maybe we shouldn't strive to either. I mean, it's a different time, different place. But the more we come together like we do on Wednesdays, the more we experience that resurrection life that Christ offers to us right now the more we understand that when Christ says, I have come that they may have life and have it abundantly, we realize that that is exactly what Jesus was talking about. There's a, a famous German theologian named Dietrich Bonhoeffer. He's most known for uh, having been executed during World War II for speaking out against the Third Reich. Um, one of his most popular books is a book called Life Together. And he talks all about what it means to be in Christian community. And one of his quotes from that book is, he says, The more genuine and the deeper our community becomes, the more will everything else between us recede. The more clearly and purely will Jesus Christ and his work become the one and only thing that is vital between us. This is the resurrection life. When we're drawn together to the point that the only thing that matters between us is Jesus Christ, the one who unites us. I firmly believe this is the way forward for the church, and not just this church, but the big C church, that we would understand and that we would take hold 
of the fact that we are called to resurrection life here and now, and that we can only experience that resurrection life together, because that is how God created us to be, in community with one another, because God himself is a relational God. So too are we called to relationship. Amen.